A lot of this has to do with being a part of Generation X raised by white middle-class baby boomers and realizing very late in the game how much my whole generation internalized a lot of the the assumptions that were carried by baby boomers in the relative stability of the second half of the 20th century and the way that that impacts this myth of the inevitability of social progress in the long term. That's cartoonist Nate Powell on his latest book, Save It For Later. It's a collection of graphic essays about parenting, protest, and the kinds of promises we can or can't make for the next generation. Powell's March trilogy, which he co-wrote with Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Aiden, won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 2016. This week on Interstates, Nate Powell in conversation with Earth Eats host Kate Young. That's coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm guessing you remember where you were when you found out the results of the 2016 presidential election however you felt about it. Graphic novelist Nate Powell had just finished his National Book Award-winning trilogy, March. He wrote that with Andrew Aiden and Congressman John Lewis. It's an autobiographical account of the civil rights movement. And, you know, I feel like the main message we get about the civil rights movement is about the arc of the moral universe. It's long, but it bends toward justice. Nate was feeling that, too. He was telling his daughter that the first woman was about to be elected president. And then the votes started coming in. Nate writes about and draws that moment in his newest book, Save It For Later. It's a collection of graphic essays about living at a time when it feels less obvious that the universe is bending toward justice. This week on a special Fun Drive edition of Interstates, Earth Eats host Kate Young, who is also a graphic memoirist herself, talks with Nate Powell about censorship, military aesthetics and consumer goods, writing about his life almost as it's happening, and how to talk to your kids about complex moral and political issues. But first, a quick word to you, dear listener. As you know, this is a public radio show. Not only that, it's a local public radio show. I mean that in a couple of ways. It's made locally, handcrafted in the studios of WFIU Bloomington. And we also use local ingredients. Nate Powell may be a nationally known artist, but he's also a local as are Ileana Haberman and Jay Kim and Dorian Bybee and Sam Schof. Just about everyone I've spoken with has some insight into Southern Indiana. So much of our media these days is national, whether it's the excellent reporting on NPR or it's cable news or the New York Times. The thing is, you can't get an in-depth understanding of your community that way. We need to keep supporting local news, like what's produced just down the hall in our newsroom. And we also need media that pays attention to local culture, What's going on in Bloomington, Columbus, Terre Haute, or across the state and region? That's what we do here on Interstates. And your support makes that happen. If local arts and culture coverage is important to you, help support it. Call 800-662-3311 or go to wfiu.org donate. And tell us what matters to you on WFIU. Okay, let's get to Kate Young's conversation with Nate Powell. Here's Kate. I really wanted to talk to you today about your book, Save It for Later. And I know there's a new release that has come out with additional material. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that book. Just tell us what it is and talk about the new release. You bet. Save It for Later is a hybrid of essay and memoir that covers a lot of 
both my family's personal subjective experiences really over the last eight years, not only equipping my kids with the tools they need to be able to tackle a lot of the increasing and pressing challenges in the world that they are rapidly inheriting, but also the widely shared experiences that a lot of us have had during this kind of authoritarian power struggle and this crisis for democracy. And that's combined with essay segments that are a little more objective and sort of peel back layers of popular culture and consumer culture and how they relate to the normalizing of fascist and authoritarian symbols and presence in our everyday lives. So I was wondering if we could start with you talking about your history as a comics creator, the different kinds of work that you've done, and how this work is different from that. I guess from the get-go, I have always been interested in making fiction primarily when I'm doing comics that are entirely my own creation. Uh, I'm a writer-artist, and I'm an artist who works with a number of writers. I'm best known for doing nonfiction comics, but I sort of feel like my strong suit in my home planet is actually magical realist fiction. So I'm best known for for doing the March Trilogy and being involved with its follow-up book, Run, and working together with John Lewis to convey his experiences as a young person at the center of the civil rights movement. And then that experience affected me as a storyteller, but also just as a person trying to affect change and sort of impacted my approach to work since the completion of that trilogy. Okay, so before you got involved with the March trilogy, your personal work, which was written by you, was mostly fiction. Yes. And a lot of that simply is a product of, was a product of my age and the ways in which other life circumstances impact what we want to do. I've been publishing comics for 30 years. I started as a, as a young teenager, but I certainly, you know, prior to working on the March trilogy, even up into my early 30s, I was definitely, I had kind of a an insular, snooty, auteur's perspective to just making the weird stories that I make having a blast and really not having a lot of consideration for exactly who is reading those stories, why, how, what their own personal experiences might be, which they may bring to the table as they're reading. These were a lot of things that were kind of brought to my attention and turned on their head with the release of that first March book. And how was it turned on its head? Well, a lot of it was simply, uh, I feel like prior to the release of March book one, I almost had an attitude that I should not consider the potential readership of a book that I'm doing. And a lot of this, I think, I would refer to this as punk rock baggage, as internalizing a lot of the individualist attitudes that I would have towards making art and music without really thinking about it critically. But the very first day that March Book One came out in 2013, at the very first signing, that changed because we had... Thankfully, we had a very long signing line at San Diego Comic-Con. It was long enough that many people in the, in the line were able to read at least half of the book by the time they got up to get their book signed. And so it was fascinating because people on day one were coming to us with reactions, with questions, with 
personal and historical connections. And we were, we were getting feedback in real time. But specifically, you know, educators and librarians were showing up telling us about not only their enthusiasm for the book, but importantly, what they were doing to make a space for our work on their shelves or in their classroom. And I feel like that was the first time in which I, I was ever forced to actually put a face on the people who I would refer to as positive gatekeepers, you know, revealing the fact that books don't just wind up on shelves and in stores and in schools and libraries. People don't just wind up stumbling into books most of the time and reading them. Uh, it involves a lot of effort, a lot of sticking up for some of this work, and increasingly, varied stages of risk on behalf of bookstore owners, educators, library workers, etc. Okay, well, I really wanted to talk about this later, but I I can't resist just diving right into that since it's it's come up already. Is this the role of of these gatekeepers, positive or negative? Uh, these these gatekeepers in libraries and in classrooms. This is something that's really in the news, shall we say? <laughs> it's very very current that we're dealing with. Just. You know, I don't know if you want to call it censorship or if it's directly called book banning, but there are definitely a lot of uh, new policies in states all across the U.S. that are limiting and restricting the kinds of reading material in libraries, public libraries, and in classrooms. I mean, I know that the March trilogy is probably included in some of those books. There have always been eyes on it. We've had legal challenges in the past in prisons uh, in a couple of random schools. But right now, March hasn't shown up on the chopping block with this this current very heavy coordinated wave of book challenges and bans. So yeah, it was interesting when you brought up whether to refer to it as censorship or simply as challenges and bans. I do think that the more dangerous and likely possibility coming from this is that the outright censorship and and banning campaign on its face will not be successful, but the greater damage will be increasing levels of what I would refer to as soft censorship, which is people, you know, looking out for their jobs and their safety and simply choosing not to include certain books in their curriculum or in their libraries and making decisions which are very understandable, but that are harder to keep track of and which have a much quieter and more pervasive chilling effect, not only with culture at large, but for something like the March Trilogy, which is history, which is taught in schools as history, and which is a new generation's foremost source for history about the civil rights movement, removal of those books, whether through legislative means or through this sort of like soft censorship, achieves the larger goal of removing the history itself from classroom. So I just wanted to, to return to your personal experience as, as an author and what, what it was like for you, what it meant for you to be working on a project that wasn't fiction and that was, like you said, this hybrid of, of personal essay commenting on the larger culture and the political landscape of the times, but also some personal history and memoir, 
and bringing your family in, into your stories. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about what that was like for you. I think when the initial, when the initial seeds were planted in my mind, which would eventually culminate in Save It For Later, I personally wasn't interested in doing autobiographical comics at all. And this goes back to, I guess, underlining the reasons why I make comics in the first place. So by the end of 2017, I feel like through that first year of the previous administration and everyone getting through their day to day while working in a very reactive position, trying to kind of catch up with what seemed to be a hundred dumpster fires burning every day. By the end of 2017, it seemed very obvious to me that even with some of my closest friends and even sometimes within my own household, there was this unspoken notion that there simply wasn't enough bandwidth to really talk about the smaller, quieter, more personal aspects in which this authoritarian power grab was impacting us as a community, as neighbors, as a family unit, as individuals. And a lot of that, you know, boils down to stuff that can often be easily dismissed. Finding space to talk about anxiety, dread, doom, hope, things that are less tangible in the face of very concrete problems with solutions that people need to band together to achieve. However, I also realized that I was forgetting some of the details of those moments just a year into the previous administration. And so comics were working for me just as scribbles in my sketchbook to write down moments and details and vignettes so I wouldn't forget them. Uh, As I started collecting those moments, it occurred to me that these weren't necessarily specific to me. These were broadly shared personal experiences. And I, when I say broadly, I really mean outside of a political binary. It's important to remember that in 2016 and 2017, a lot of political moderates and moderate sane conservatives were also really anxious and troubled and really uncertain about the the car that the dog caught. In my opinion, it's just that I think a lot of moderates and a lot of conservatives accepted the normalization of the circumstances a lot more quickly and just kind of went along with their everyday lives. And so I, I rec- as soon as I recognized that these experiences weren't limited to me or to my family, that perhaps there was a purpose to airing the laundry and to clearing out space, because that space for that sort of personal dialogue was going to continue to disappear more and more quickly. Um, by early March 2018, I had a general outline together for just the first-person memoir parts of Save It For Later. Uh, And I wanted it to be a really slim, like, 96-page book that I could do in a matter of months and immediately print and get out into the world. Again, thinking reactively instead of thinking into the future. But my agent thought it was a great idea and Immediately after that meeting, I went back to my hotel room and I outlined and thumbnailed and broke down sketches for the first two chapters of the book in one sitting. And uh, things came together really quickly. And the essay chapters were separate at that time. They were intended to be standalone projects. But the more I worked on those essay chapters, the more I realized that I was really addressing the same stuff as with my memoir book. So once I made the decision that this was all one work, 
then everything really kind of enriched itself and started to open up new narrative possibilities within the book. And so by the essay pieces you're talking about, about face. Yes. I started that at the same time that I started these these early memoir chapters. About Face is a comics essay about the normalization of fascist and authoritarian aesthetic and symbols in consumer culture and pop culture. It's about the ways in which that's changed over the course of decades, and it's about the ways in which that has impacted the normalization of fascist and authoritarian forces in society at large. Interestingly, as I was just observing things as another driver, recognizing that late model cars and trucks and SUVs not only were being bought primarily in black and charcoal, but that extra money was being spent for detailing and modification that would black out taillights, that were these new advancements in all black rims and hubcap covers, license plate covers really leaning into total obscurity, but even corporate logos, which were until very recently, especially in car culture, esteemed as a symbol of status, it seemed like they were quickly becoming replaced with this notion of uh, even blacking out the corporate logo so that the aesthetic choice of the full blackout had more cultural currency than the status implications of getting a brand new Dodge Ram. And how does that that look of the sort of blacked out, how does that relate to this kind of militarized? Well, at its core, it's about a lack of accountability and a lack of recognizability. And throughout the pages of the essay, I sort of go into the the ways in which this exact lack of accountability and this kind of facial obscurity was often decried by these same people when it served their ends, often in some racist application of outrage, but that for people for whom this is a child's power fantasy enacted in adulthood, now that they have the disposable income to make choices about spending thousands of dollars on body armor and guns or buying a $70,000 modded out truck that'll put them in a debt hole for the rest of their lives, but it's worth it to feel like they got their big boy power truck. It comes down to revealing the notion that this kind of uh, insecure tough guy fundamentally feels that they are above the law, above a certain level of accountability, and that their existence has ensured them the right to remain above the law. So during the authoritarian power grab that really kicked in throughout the 2010s, on a consumer culture level, this is about buying adjacency to authoritarian power, being able to emulate whether it was the military or paramilitary aesthetic from earlier in one's own life, or just buying adjacency to a lot of the aesthetic shifts that cops had enacted throughout the 2010s, and feeling like if you put enough money into modifications on your truck, there were very few distinctions between your blacked out truck and that blacked out sheriff's truck that had the same Punisher skull, that had the same black, white, and blue American flag. It was the blurring of the lines of state power 
through consumer goods. It's time for a break. When we come back, Nate Powell talks about making the social and political themes of his work more clear, even when he's doing 90s punk soap opera with interdimensional travel. Before we listen to that, though, now's a good time for you to support this work. 800-662-3311 or wfiu.org slash donate. Stick around. Interstate's Alex Chambers, graphic novelist Nate Powell is talking with Earth Eats host Kate Young about his latest book, Save It for Later, a collection of graphic essays about parenting and the urgency of protest. Let's get back to it. Okay, so you you had these essays that you were writing, and then you have this this more memoir stories that you've pulled together into this one book. And I'm interested in the way that drawing seems to tap into some other part of ourselves than than writing does. And I feel like looking at images as a reader also pulls on some other part of myself. And I would like to know what role drawing plays for you in accessing memories and in accessing those emotions that are connected to the memories in maybe a different way than writing does. For me, uh, I think a lot of it is the inseparability of my way of navigating the world visually, processing information visually, and finding a satisfaction and a fulfillment in making visual art really in an unchanged way since I was a three-year-old. But specifically, I, I think that oftentimes there's a compromise that's made when you're translating information, especially subjective experiential information or sense memory, when you're translating that into the written word, or maybe I should even say when I'm translating that into the written word, and I feel like there's an immediacy and a rawness to trying to communicate as much as possible through visual means, I've learned increasingly that this takes an extra step in visual literacy, I think, for readership in general. And it requires challenging my own assumptions that not everyone has such a visually centered mind or a visually focused process of reading and absorbing information. So certainly over the last six or seven years, I've tried to be more mindful of being able to point out things with a little more concreteness and clarity to a reader instead of assuming that they're going to absorb vague, nonverbal information off the pages of my comic. And it kind of gets back to what you said at the, at the beginning when you were talking about recognizing the impact that, the effect on the world that your work could have if you're considering the readers. Certainly. I mean, even right now I'm, I'm finishing up work on a weird kind of 90s punk soap opera that involves a lot of interdimensional travel. Like things are getting really strange in my studio right now. And it's it's pure fiction, but it's very satisfying with, you know, like confronting my own memories of just being on tour with bands and all and all of the experiences and feelings involved with punk. But a lot of my 
work doing nonfiction comics accounts really comes to play in terms of being able to convey even really out there narratives with hopefully an increasing level of concern for being concrete and being clear when it's necessary as a storyteller and kind of not leaving as much to be just assumed on on behalf of the reader. And I think that's hopefully allowed some of the continuing social and political themes and questions, even in my fiction, to find a home that's a little more comfortable uh, for them. Well, can we come back to talking a little bit more about Save It for Later and about making work that is that is from coming from your own life and your own experiences and in some cases really recent experiences <laughs> like it felt like at some times you were kind of making these stories in real time can you talk about about that a little bit and about what that was like bringing your family into it and also i guess the effect of living your life knowing that you're making art about it. Very important point to bring up. Uh, yes. The content that's within the pages of Save It For Later largely covers my and my family's experiences between 2015 and the end of 2019. And, yeah, importantly, you know, as I have never really been very interested in doing something that is straight autobiography or memoir, but realizing that these were not stories that were specific, these weren't experiences which were specific to me or to my family. Soon after that, then I realized it would be inevitable that my family, including my two small kids, would need to be depicted in some way in the pages of the book. So uh, one of the just cartoonist Jedi tricks that I used was turning my kids and turning most young people in the book into this weird kind of equestrian dog-unicorn hybrid, some kind of cute animal. And uh, basically, this served two functions. One was a basic consent issue, recognizing that my kids had no ability to consent and looking for some kind of an ethical way around that nagging sense that I had inside myself that, you know, something just wasn't sitting right. If I was approaching these experiences as just, you know, straight cartooning out of the pages of my life. Um, The second impact of that decision was that it was achieving what I was after as soon as I decided to make the book, which was that I knew that these were experiences which were shared really broadly. And my assumption was that nobody's really interested in specifically reading about me or my kids, but by masking my children as these anthropomorphized, you know, unicorn deer, hopefully a reader would not be reading those kids as my kids, but would be projecting the young people in their life into those characters. Uh, My older kid at the time, while I was drawing the book, was six, seven, eight years old. And so our conversations were getting more complex as my kid's worldview was rapidly expanding. And that was impacting my work on the page as I was doing it. But Inevitably, uh, and there's even a little bit of this at the very end of the book where I'm, I'm really talking about as, as a major takeaway, 
how it's fundamentally important for all adults to recognize that no matter how cool you think you are, no matter how enlightened you think you are, in terms of intergenerational reckoning, there will come a time in which you are the person who's out of touch. You're the dinosaur. And it's really important to learn when to shut up and just listen to your kids or listen to the young people when they're telling you that you're behind the times or when they have an important question that needs an answer. And by the time I was done drawing the book, I had already crossed that threshold in a very self-aware cartoonist way. It was happening in my living room as I was talking about it in the pages of the book. Yeah, I feel like one of the things that you explore in the book is the the challenge of parenting during times of political upheaval, and maybe there's always political upheaval, but feels different sure <laughs> these does. days. Um, you know, we, we want to pass on our values to our kids, but we also want to allow and encourage them to think for themselves even when they're quite young and to feel free to disagree with us. And I just wonder your thoughts on that line between indoctrinating and educating or opening up a space for them. I think that my wife and I have exactly the same perspective and have always had the same perspective about how much information and how much explicit guidance to give our kids in terms of how they're perceiving the world around them on a social and political level. But a lot of this is more of that intergenerational reckoning. It, it has to do with being a part of Generation X raised by white middle-class baby boomers and realizing very late in the game how much my whole generation, generally speaking, internalized a lot of the a lot of the assumptions that were carried by baby boomers in the relative stability of the second half of the 20th century. And some of that might be specific to being Southern white middle-class baby boomers, having to do with a lot of assumptions and outright myths involving people who are or were associated with segregation and white supremacy in my parents' generation's lives, being given a pass or greatly benefiting from a huge kind of redemption arc in their own lives, and the way that that impacts the notion of this, this myth of the inevitability of social progress in the long term. And I think that's something that for my generation and also you know, older millennials and stuff, reckoning almost immediately with that, the hollowness of that assumption throughout the 2010s, recognizing that you know the moral arc of the universe is definitely long, but it does not bend towards justice on its own. And that seems almost like a cliche now to make that distinction. But six years ago, that was the fundamental shock, I think, that that went across our society was people not being able to wrap their minds around the fact that there was no inevitability of progress. There was no arc bending towards justice on its own. And so I think as parents... In the, those early few years of our parenthood, in the first half of the 2010s, we were just kind of, you know, letting things unfold and trying to be mindful of what our kids were picking up and what, they were, what questions they were asking about. But I guess specific to the political fabric of our nation right now and its social upheaval as we're, you know, battling for the soul of democracy, 
it was July 2016 after Trump's uh, campaign stop, I believe in Kentucky. That was the big stop where Indiana Nazi Matthew Heimbach roughed up and harassed a black protester who was in the crowd and where you got you got Donald Trump in there, you know, talking about the good old days and carrying people out in a stretcher. Uh, who were protesters and and outright encouraging violence and and making hollow promises of paying the legal fees for people who committed violence against nonviolent protesters. I think that was the day the that was the news day in which my wife and I recognized that we had an obligation to draw a particular line in the sand instead of making an assumption that someone who's eating up every second of the media landscape every day could actually be absorbed neutrally by a young child without some kind of baseline moral and ethical guidance. So that was actually the day, as is depicted in Save It For Later, where we had to kind of be like, look, we just have to be like, this is a bad dude. Like for the reasons of encouraging violence, for the specific ways in which, you know, he has he has shown himself in public and in court to be someone who is a purveyor of just like the worst qualities of humankind. It's our obligation as parents to do this. And the fact that we feel a certain kind of tension, that that there is no room for a redemption narrative in there, really indicates or it indicated at that time the cracks that were very quickly forming in that intergenerational post-war assumption about the inevitability of progress. Like, if you don't point these things out, you are making space for those things to be normalized. And these seem like little decisions, but that's what a lot of Save It For Later is. It's the cumulative, uh, the cumulative impact of these little decisions on a mass societal level, the, the things we choose to do or choose not to do, what we choose to show up for and what we choose not to show up for, the times we choose to be silent and the times we choose to alienate ourselves from our neighbors on occasion by standing up. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in the story, too, when the child is, is playing and has a, a symbol on her arm. And, you know, the parents are talking to her. And I I really love the image of the dagger coming from the eyes. You know, the character who who represents you is, you know, wanting to kind of get into like how violent Nazis are or were. And (laughs) which doesn't exactly (laughs) translate to a three and a half year old who's living in a like a fantasy play zone at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this this is a scene that kind of ties in my love for comics with the sort of pop culture applications of representing fascism and authoritarianism. So, yeah, it, uh, it basically goes back to watching the 1970s Wonder Woman show with my kid as a three year old at the time and kind of forgetting that from the very pilot episode, it revolves around this fight against actual Nazis during World War II, and then realizing that there's this whole trove of information that I immediately needed to wade through to figure out what was necessary to convey. And a lot of that chapter really revolves around figuring out by failure how much is too much information and and at what point that quickly becomes unhelpful, especially for a very young mind. And also the role that fantasy plays. Yeah, so the the symbol was this very crudely drawn swastika 
a few days later while my kid was playing and, quote, pretending to be the bad guys. And so my wife and I had to sit down and, again, had to draw a line in the sand and had to make the distinction that it was okay to pretend to be bad guys, but there were certain specific bad guys in the real world who we never pretend to be. And also in these moments, you know, like my wife and I work as a team but in the in the pages of how I convey it in the book, it increasingly became important for me to kind of always be the fool or the overreacting idiot whenever possible. And a lot of that is just really taking advantage of comics' ability to compartmentalize and magnify certain sides of a conversation or a dialogue to their advantage. So, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have... Uh, a child expert and social worker as my life partner to kind of guide me through these difficult moments. But it also it feels good to kind of uh, make fun of myself along the way for being the one who's <laughs> almost knocking it off the rails by being like, oh, no, I've got this. I can explain this fine. Yeah. It took a pretty serious and delicate moment, and it did make me laugh a little bit to see the little daggers coming from her eyes towards oh, yes. you. The like, not now daggers. Yeah, like too far. <laughs> yeah, and I think just those scenes really are just showing the complexities of trying to to wade through so much material, so much historical material with a small child who's not going to be able to take it all in. And then trying to deal with kind of the day-to-day, how is this showing up in their own psyche as they're working out stuff through play? Well, that's the thing that's, you know, it's obvious to any parent or any educator. But again, it's something that I don't think is discussed in a very general way amongst a lot of people is the fact that very young kids are able to tackle pretty complex information. It's just an issue of learning what their level is at that moment and recognizing that a kid is going to come back and have follow-up questions. They are going to contextualize it with their life. And so it really is just an issue of seeing beyond that one moment and waiting for the follow-up questions, waiting for your kid to process the one or two things you said and come back looking for a few more answers, a few more answers. The other thing I was going to say, we are starting to get close to running out of time, but just about her play with that symbol on her arm really pulled in the essay that you had about being at a Comic-Con and seeing someone show up in in a Nazi uniform as as part of their cosplay or whatever, and the, how that, the, yeah, it just felt like there was a continuity there. You bet. And, some, and a lot of those asides from the, the memoir narrative had been observations that I had slowly been writing down and making as early as 2008. But a lot of this stuff, you know, I was finally getting really, a lot of it went into a book I did called Any Empire, which came out 11 years ago, but really was kind of a precursor of this moment of absolute crisis that we're living in now. But, you know, at that time, like, it was still, it wasn't commonplace, but you could definitely count on occasionally seeing the highly questionable Nazi cosplayer at a comic convention or in any, you know, geeky pop culture space. And you never knew 
unless you went and confronted the person. You never knew if they were actually cosplaying as a character, like if they were being someone from, you know, a quote character from like the man in the high castle, or if they were being a quasi Nazi fascist character that would be in like Starship Troopers. Uh, the point was that they were just being trolls. The reason why they were dressing that way was in this contrarian sense, the knowledge that everyone was made uncomfortable by their presence, but the only way to get clarity was by directly confronting them. And so it was a challenge to ownership of the space. But it's also important to point out that in 2011, I was giving enough plausible deniability that as I was twiddling my thumbs about the right thing to do, I was watching other people be more proactive and directly confront them and recognizing that that was a failure on my end, but simultaneously praising the courage and bluntness of strangers around me who didn't have those reservations at the time. This is Interstates. We're talking with graphic novelist Nate Powell, who co-wrote the National Book Award-winning March trilogy and Save It for Later, a collection of graphic essays about parenting, protest, and, as you heard, the militarization of consumer culture. If you appreciate what we're doing here, support us at 800-662-3311 or at wfiu.org slash donate. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Let's get back to Kate Young's conversation with graphic novelist Nate Powell. His latest book is Save It for Later, Promises, Parenthood, and the Urgency of Protest. So we've talked about the role that some of these projects can play in in a school setting, in education. And I know you were uh, you have a a one-page comic or a poster that you did for the American Library Association. Could you talk about that? You bet. Uh, yeah, throughout the year, I've done a set of three shorter comics that are basically uh, meeting with the rolling demands that are happening right now with these organized far-right book challenge and book ban campaigns. I recognized that we had a couple of experiences early on through the course of doing the March trilogy that were helpful to people as as they were confronting the these organized book challenges. There was a legislative side to the book challenges that were using cut and paste language in dozens of states that needed to be addressed as a whole, but people needed to understand where the legislative language was doing work that would effectively limit books from be even being considered for inclusion in in public schools or even that would prevent the writers themselves from not only being class speakers but from even discussing the work with educators even without students present uh, and then the third comic that I did this ALA comic was in recognizing that since we're facing this very broad organized campaign it was important to get a set of, I guess you would just call them talking points, but in order to take the offense, to limit the amount of time that we spend being in a reactive state against the forcible demands of, of these pressure campaigns. And it was important that 
we convey to people that when you see a comic, when you read a comic, this is what's happening. These are the strengths. This is what's going on in your mind. There's a lot of nonverbal information that you're absorbing. Comics can be very high-minded and cover really heavy stuff, but they don't have to be like that. Comics are their own medium. They're their own format. They're able to be all of these things. But it was also necessary to point out the inherent weaknesses of comics, or I guess instead of weakness, I would say the inherent vulnerability of the medium, which allows it to be such an easy target for these organized book ban campaigns. Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting, both of those points. Uh, would you mind reading a little bit from this? I would love or to, read? sure. Yeah. So in this one-page poster... I'm discussing just a few of comics' unique strengths. This is five strengths and a vulnerability. Number one, we live in an interface-driven society whose visual language was developed in comics by cartoonists over the past century, full stop. Comics literacy is key to a sharper modern literacy in general. Number two, comics operate on multiple levels at once offering a more immersive, engaging reader experience than any other mass medium. So much content is conveyed non-verbally, and our brains process it readily when we read comics. Number three, comics can make huge ideas and subjects accessible. Take it from me, working to convey a first-person historical account of the civil rights movement into something many more people can process, humanize, and apply to our world today. But they don't need to be huge ideas, though. Comics can just as easily be about donuts, squirrels, or the feeling of grass on your bare feet. Number four, comics are the most democratic mass storytelling medium. They're cheap, low-risk creative platforms for people to express themselves, helping reflect our society more fully when we encourage people to both convey their own ideas and to better understand the people around them. You don't even need to draw well to make a comic. Number five, as you may be aware, comics are often easy targets for those averse to ideas, empathy, and uncomfortable history. Comics' historical vulnerabilities from McCarthyism to today and their visual nature allow comic subject matter to be attacked without even being read, all to undercut the impact of my previous points, points three and four. And number six, importantly, comics make lifelong readers. They're not a gateway to reading as much as they're an effective format for cultivating habits and curiosity, making reading part of the fabric of everyday life. I initially made this one-page comic for the ALA conferences, uh, the ALA conference, which put out a librarian's guide to graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And then I got such an immediate, passionate response from library people and educators the day of the ALA conference. I, I was crushed with dozens and dozens of messages and emails that were so enthusiastic about what was communicated through this one-page comic that I wrote the ALA to see what they thought about getting a poster made. Right. And so they just requested a header, and I needed something that was basically going to lead us into it more seamlessly. And so I settled on comics are reading. Well, I just think it's great because I know so many parents who uh, fret over 
there are kids who only want to read comics at a certain age, and they should be reading chapter books now. And I may have been guilty of this with my own child at one point. But, you know, it's just so I, I just really love the messaging that I find at our own public library, which is all reading is reading. And you don't need to be censoring or pushing or guiding or let the kids read what they want to read. That's and true. <laughs> the, the more... The more we read, the more we want to read, yeah. and and the more we're the more we're following our curiosities, the more curiosities develop, and so yeah, I, I've I've been very much the same way. Obviously, I'm a comics person, so my house is full of comics, and I've had those moments of like whoa in the past of like we should really be getting some of the some of the pictures out and getting more text only books, but. It turns out, yes, indeed, that happens naturally. The more a kid reads, the more they want to read across the board. They do not make these distinctions that that we are projecting upon them. Yeah. And what I like about that piece, too, is that it really talks about the complex things that are happening when people are, are reading comics. And it's not a lesser form of reading. Yeah. And that's the important thing is understanding like it's not a genre, but it is a format. It is a medium. And so there are simply different cognitive processes happening. I mean, there are cross sensory situations happening when you're a comics reader so that everything's being conveyed visually, but you're receiving information that is auditory, that is tactile. You're really running through most of the five senses as well as traveling back and forwards through time. And all of it is being conveyed using one sense. It's, it's magic. That was graphic novelist Nate Powell in conversation with Earth Eats host Kate Young. Powell's latest book is a collection of graphic essays called Save It For Later, Promises, Parenthood, and the Urgency of Protest. Kate Young's graphic memoir is called Eleven. I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening to this special Fund Drive edition of Interstates. As you know, WFIU is made possible through the contributions of listeners like you. And I just want to say, we both know it's not going to go away tomorrow if you don't contribute. That's part of why public media is so worthwhile. It's free for everyone, whether they can afford to pay for it or not. Keeping it free for everyone depends on the listeners who are able to give, whether it's $10 or $20 a month or even more. So if you haven't supported us yet, or you feel like now is a good time to increase your support, give us a call at 800-662-3311 or go to wfiu.org slash donate. All right, time for the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ayabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Nate Powell. All right, time to go somewhere and listen to something. That was Robins on a Winter Day in Southern Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. We make the round sound soon.